Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. George Cawthorley runs a medical products and pharmaceuticals business. He was born in Stanley internment camp in 1942 during the Japanese military occupation and is the sixth generation of his family in China. His mother's family was first in China in 1801. In this week's programme, George Cawthorley talks to me about returning to Hong Kong from the UK in 1964 as a 22-year-old to join his uncle's firm and how as soon as he felt the spray of the sea on the front of the Cross Harbour Ferry, he knew that he was home. I was born in uh, 1942 in Stanley internment camp in the middle of a typhoon. I lived through the war here and then we went back to England and came back in 1947. Then I went to school in Hong Kong. I lived my early life in Hong Kong until the age of eight when I was shipped back to boarding school in the UK. And I used to come back once a year until my parents moved to Brunei. And then they retired in 1960. And life for me then seemed to be predicated to being fully in the UK. But my mother's brother, who was in Hong Kong and owned a trading company here in 1964, asked me if I'd like to come and join him. Um, so I came back in 1964, uh, and I've been here ever since. I came back, I think it was in October 1964, on a VC-10, which had just been introduced into the Hong Kong route because of the Olympic Games in Japan, actually. There's been more than usual excitement at Queen's Building, London Airport. It's a romantic place at any time. Holiday atmosphere, business journeys, never a dull moment. This year, there's a new interest, the VC-10, BOAC's outstanding contribution to the second generation of jet airliners. Four Rolls-Royce Conway engines are rear-mounted. The right place, according to modern practice, for many reasons. Result, every seat in front of the engines. Every passenger away from all noise. Up to 120 passengers enjoy comfort of a kind unknown in previous airliners. And I remember uh, flying out here, I was sitting next to a Thai girl who told me that she was going to Bangkok to dance for the king and queen. Um, and I thought that was probably a bit of a story. Um, but when we landed in Bangkok, there was a whole group of military people on the tarmac waiting to, <laughs> to, to get her. But anyway, we came on to Hong Kong, and it was a nice... I remember very clearly it was a nice sunny day, and my uncle lived on Hong Kong Island, um, and I was going to stay with his mother-in-law until they found me a more permanent residence. And we came across on the vehicular ferry, and I automatically, as I always had done as a, as, as a little kid, got out of the car and went to the front to feel the spray. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm back home. Um, and I, I never thought I'd ever come back to Hong Kong. And, and so it took me literally probably less than a couple of hours to feel I was back home here. And I felt just totally comfortable. Where was the vehicular ferry from and to? Well, it was from Yamati in, into Central. And it was still the same old route and the same old ferries and everything looked totally familiar, except there'd been a lot of building had gone on because the last time I was in Hong Kong before that was uh, 1954. So that's 10 years. And... I came to the conclusion after a few weeks that, well, actually probably much later, but I came to the conclusion that those 10 years was when Hong Kong had changed most dramatically from what you might call a town 
uh, into a proper city. Since then, I've always felt the development of Hong Kong had just been a, a continuum, but it took this great big leap forward. Let's have a think, 1954? Uh, 1954, uh, the harbour front was more or less where Statue Square is. All the buildings along the front were the old colonial-style architecture, beautiful with balconies and balustrades and everything. It was a completely different scene, and the Hong Kong Bank, well, by that time, Bank of China had been built, and Bank of China was slightly taller than the Hong Kong Bank, but those are the two iconic buildings on the Hong Kong side. And, and on the Kowloon side, there was one building the name of which I can never remember, but it was the only building more than four stories high. And it was, I think it was a department store in it. Kowloon was simply three, four-story buildings all over the place. Peninsula was the tallest building at the front, of course. You can say it was a low-rise city. You came in on a VC-10 and you said that was partly as a result of the Japan Olympics. What's the connection there? Well, the VC-10 was introduced on the Asian route for the Olympics. And the Olympics took place in 1964 in Japan. And it was the first time it took place in Japan. And so this was a nice new super jet. It looked very grand. Incidentally, the VC-10's engines provided thrust of seven tons, or to use the old-fashioned term, 26,000 horsepower. And that is when they're throttled back a bit, up in the substratosphere, to cruise the aircraft at up to 600 miles an hour. These Rolls-Royce Conways have proved themselves to be the most reliable power units in the air today. Passengers take their qualities for granted. Though some of them may know that these bypass jet engines are used by nine international airlines and run for 5,500 hours without a major overhaul. I'd had another interesting flight experience to Hong Kong uh, back in the 1950s. I've been in the 50s. We used to come out in a four-engined propeller plane uh, called an Argonaut, which took about 50 passengers. When we flew, the 50 passengers were almost exclusively kids coming back for their summer holidays, and then. The Comet was introduced into service in the early 1950s, but the Comet only flew to Singapore because it couldn't land at Kai Tak because Kai Tak didn't have a long enough runway. But my father thought it was a great idea for me to experience the Comet, so I had one flight on the Comet, and not long before my flight, a Comet crashed, and not long after my flight, a Comet crashed. Um, and the comet, that Comet 1 didn't last very long and it had a structural problem. So I consider myself very lucky to have flown on it and survived. <laughs> <laughs> when you come into Hong Kong, your 22-year-old George Causerly, do you have any brothers and sisters? I have one brother who has never come back because he was four years younger than me. He left Hong Kong in, in 1955 when my parents uh, left to go on leave before being transferred to Brunei. Can you describe yourself at age 22? What were your interests? Were you a sporting type? Did you like music? I liked pop music, like old youngsters. I did like sport. I was not particularly good at it, but I enjoyed playing games. I basically came to Hong Kong because I didn't know what else to do. And I had no particular ideas of what I wanted to do with my life. Had you studied? I had made a conscious decision when I was at secondary school that I wouldn't go to university because I'd gone to see some of my friends at university and realized that there was so much going on there that I would have no time to study and I'd therefore waste my father's money. So I decided not to study and my father said, well, look, you must take up some profession. So he decided after talking to some of his friends that accountancy was a good thing. So I was shipped off for an interview at Pete Marwick Mitchell in London and I became an article clerk and I found that incredibly boring, lasted two years 
didn't do my evening study, which I should have done for my exams, and I realized I was going to fail, so I quit that, and I was actually just floundering around. I went and taught at my prep school for two terms. Where was your prep school? Near Uckfield in Sussex, in, in, in Crowborough, and that was, that was very interesting because I actually enjoyed teaching, but also I knew I couldn't do it long term. It was a nice little interlude. Um, and then I went and applied for a job in advertising, which I thought was very glamorous. And I was offered this job, but I got back home, and it was to start on a Monday, and this was on a Friday. And there was a cable from my uncle, and it gave a whole case for why I should come and join him in this company. And I thought, well, I don't enjoy work, but I, Hong Kong was very nice, so I may as well work in a place that's nice at least. And that was my whole decision-making process, <laughs> to come and join him. Your family is Scottish? Yes, not so long ago I was trying to work out what we predominantly were, because I always think of myself as being English. But actually the predominant nationality I have is Scottish, because my grandmother on my father's side was Scottish, my grandfather was English. On my mother's side, she's a Campbell, so her father was Scottish, and then we have bits of Irish and Italian thrown in, and a Huguenot actually. Uh, on my father's side, uh, we go all the way back to my great-great-great grandfather was the son of a half Huguenot and married a Huguenot um, so we've got Huguenot there so we're, we're quite a bit of a mixture. Wow and you've really managed to uh, also track back your, your family so tell me about your uncle. Well my uncle was my mother's only brother he was the youngest one in the family. So, And what was his name? Well, his, his name was Kenneth, but being the youngest in the family, he was always known as Didi, which means little brother in, in, in Chinese. He was always my uncle Didi. And he was born in Shanghai like my mother. He grew up in Shanghai. He was a great sportsman. He had his own polo ponies and used to play polo. He was a great rugby player and a cricketer. And he worked in China for British American Tobacco. And when the communists took over, he was, I think it's correct, he was on the last flight out of Shanghai. I remember, I remember going to uh, Kai Tak and he arrived in a flying boat. Um, his wife had already been sent down here about a year before with their, with their daughter and she was living with us. And he came down and his father-in-law had a business in Shanghai and transferred it down to Hong Kong. And so after going around the world to see what other opportunities there were, he decided to come back to Hong Kong and work for his father-in-law. And by the time I came out here, his father-in-law had died and he and his wife had inherited the business. So Uncle Diddy is your mother's brother. Were they both born and grew up in Shanghai? Yes, yes, yes. My mother was the youngest of, of the three daughters and, and he was the next youngest and the only son. So I can understand why you would have an affiliation to this part of the world. Absolutely, because my mother's family first appeared in China in 1801 and probably more or less continuously since 1840 has been here. And then my father's family also has a long history in China going back to certainly the early 1860s, maybe the late 1850s. So yes, I term myself as sixth generation to have lived and worked in China. So yes, we have a long history. So you're age 22, you've arrived in Hong Kong, you're feeling this spray on the vehicular ferry and you're back home, is that, is that the sensation? Yes, so yes. you go to start working for your uncle and he ran a trading firm. Right, yes, yes. They did various types of trading. One was, was scrap metal, wire particularly, which was purchased in the UK, shipped over here and used for concrete as the reinforcing bars in concrete. Another one was importing Irish linen into China to Swatow to be embroidered and then it was then sold back 
to Ireland. And, and then he had more recently started up a business in the medical field, which was pharmaceuticals and also medical equipment. And when I arrived, he suggested to me that perhaps that was the better business for me to be involved in. So I basically occupied myself with developing those businesses and I worked for him for 16 years uh, to the point where he was uh, planning to retire and he wanted to sell his business in order to be able to retire he had to have some money and uh, I obviously couldn't afford to buy his business so at that point I decided time for me to go and do something else and I genuinely wanted to go and do something else not this kind of trading business but when you're 16 years in a business you get labeled and no one was interested in me to do anything else other than medical business so I eventually after nine months of looking around uh, I set up a similar business for a UK company interestingly that it wanted to buy my uncle's business and I've been doing that ever since I eventually bought them out and what happened with your uncle's firm so my uncle sold his company to Jardines in the 1960s, as well as, uh, as you say, you come and work for your uncle's trading firm and then you move into the more medical products and pharmaceutical side of that. But uh, describe to me, living here in the early 60s, do you, do you go and, and live with in his house or do you find your own flat? I immediately went to stay at uh, my uncle's mother-in-law's apartment, which, which was in Tregunta on the peak. It was a very nice apartment. While my uncle searched around uh, to find somewhere to place me, and after about a month, I joined the New Zealand Insurance Mess, which was an apartment in Robinson Road. Actually, there was only one person for New Zealand Insurance there. There was myself and, and a Dutch guy, and then one uh, New Zealand Insurance guy, and I I stayed there for about six or eight months uh, and then during that time I became friendly with various people. I, for some reason, got in with an advertising group and they asked me to come and join an apartment they had, which was a very nice apartment. It was in Seacliff Mansion in Repulse Bay Road. It was a 2,600 square foot four bedroom apartment. There were four of us. We each had a bedroom. We had a cook and his wife as our domestic help. The cook eventually was poached by the French consul to be his cook. The cook was very good. He was lost on us. We couldn't appreciate his food. I was in that ap apartment for about 18 months. And then I teamed up with another friend in advertising and then we, we shared apartments together until I got married. And uh, who did you get married to? I got married to a local Chinese girl who was also born in Stanley um, and I always said to her she had a much better life in Stanley than I did. <laughs> she actually lived in an apartment, I lived in an alcove um, and her, her father was the administrative officer for the prisons department and so they lived in Stanley. So within Hong Kong at that time, I remember talking to the late historian Dr Dan Waters and he would always describe how the 60s were quote one damn thing after another. There was horrific typhoons, um, there was also water shortages, then of course the riots towards the end of the 1960s. Yes, well, I, I mean, water shortages was something I was used to from the 1950s. Uh, typhoons I was used to because I was born in the middle of a typhoon, but the typhoons in those days always seemed to have been worse than the typhoons after I came back in 64, although perhaps that was because I was much smaller and they seemed more terrifying. But the first event, uh, major event, that I experienced was in 1965 was the bank run, and there were a series of, of bank runs, and it got to a stage where... Uh, we were limited 
to how much cash we could draw out. What is a bank run? Someone thought that one of the banks was not going to be able to pay out its deposits to its depositors. Um, so everyone started congregating and, and wanted to, to pull out their money. And it spread across a whole lot of banks. And uh, it got quite serious. And in, in fact, I think we were allowed to draw out a maximum of $100 or $200 a day. And, and that was it. And then the British government announced that they were going to ship in pound notes that would be exchangeable at $16 to a pound because we had a fixed exchange rate in those days. And a whole bunch of millions of pounds worth of pound notes were put on a plane and shipped into Hong Kong. And as soon as they were physically shown to people, the bank run stopped. So people realized that, that, that the British government was going to solve the problem. Um, so the bank run was over. So that, that was the first thing I, <laughs> I, I encountered. And then uh, the next one was 1966. There were basically two big things. The first was the Star Ferry riots. And the second one was the Great Rains. Um, we had weeks and weeks and weeks of rain and lots of landslides. And at one time, the peak was cut off and all the Taipans had to stagger down in their shorts. And then, of course, came the 1967 riots. And I was here for the beginning of the riots. Our office was on the corner of Ice House Street and Queen's Road. And I used to be able to look out of my window and, and watch the leftists marching down Queen's Road with their little red books and shouting their slogans, etc., so I was here for about two and a half months during the riots and then I, it, I was due for leave and, and my uncle said well no you're due for leave go off for leave um, so I went off for leave and, and went and uh, stayed with my parents and I remember one day walking out of the front gate of our house that I saw walking into the front gate of the house next door the commissioner of Hong Kong police Edward Tara and he had just been fired. And his mother lived next door to my parents. Um, so for, for the rest of the time I was there, uh, next door was Edward Tara. Um, and then I came back. Um, again, the riots were still going on. And particularly at that time, there was more bombing than when I was there for the first part of it. It's an interesting few years, isn't it? As you say, with this bank run in 1965, and it sort of it seems, you know, this flight coming in with all these, as you say, millions of pound notes. And what if we go to that first, I mean, the fact is that it was $16 per pound sterling. So it was, it was a very strong pound. Yes, it was, a very, it was a very strong pound. And we kept that fixed exchange rate to the pound quite a while until the pound came under a lot of pressure. And then we switched to the US dollar. And there was a fixed exchange rate with the U.S. dollar, and then I think it went to a floating exchange rate with the U.S. dollar. And then, of course, in 19, I forget, it must have been 83, 84, when the uh, negotiations for the return of Hong Kong were going on. Um, then there was a sudden scare, and we had this huge run uh, on the Hong Kong dollar. The Hong Kong dollar went from about 6 20 or 680 all the way down to 4 something. Um, and that's when the peg was introduced, and we've lived with the peg ever since. So you got $16 to the pound in 1965 during this uh, bank run. And uh, as you say, uh, the Great Rains, I knew, or is it called the Great Rains? Well, yeah. I call it the Great Rains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just came to mind as you asked me. Um, but it was, yes, I think, I, think that, I think that was the most protracted rain event uh, that I can recall since I've been in Hong Kong. So you had landslides. And, of course, when we're looking in the 1960s, I mean, your, your first abode is at Tregunta, your second is at uh, Robinson Road. But for many people, of course, they were living in squatter huts on the hills still at that point. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, well, the, I mean, the squatter huts had been 
there's something I was very familiar with because there were squatter huts back in the 1950s um, and there was Shep Kip May um, and in, in fact I wasn't here during the Shep Kip May fire but my father raced off and filmed it and somewhere in a storage in England I have film of the Shep Kip May fire which mm. I, must, I must get out and get digitalised. When you started off working with your uncle you would have vans to do the, the deliveries, the transport but were you just, um, this, this was a Hong Kong firm for Hong Kong people or were you exporting? For the medical business, it was mostly for Hong Kong. The linen business was for China. And then, then that linen business stopped during the Cultural Revolution and never picked up again. So we lost, we lost that business. But the, the medical business, we also used to try to sell to China. And that was an interesting experience because the only way you could do so was um, to go along to China Resources. And China Resources uh, had an office in the Bank of China building. And on the top floor of the Bank of China building, there was a big sort of hall with lots of individual tables. And if you wanted to try and sell something, first of all, you tried to contact someone in China Resources and get them interested in talking to you about it. And if they were, they'd say, we'll come along at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, uh, 14th floor, and we'll see you. Um, and so I, many times I used to go along there uh, and I would do my little pitch and they would be very polite and then they'd always end up by saying, and we will convey this to our principal in China. And then you went away and you waited. And you probably most times heard nothing. Sometimes they would come back and ask for a price. And then very occasionally, they would send you an order. Um, and that was the way how we first started to do business with China. And that, that goes back to 1965 when I, I first started doing that. And so who was representing China, as in, you know, Mao's communist China in Hong Kong? You had China Resources. You would have had Xinhua News Agency. Yes, you had Xinhua News Agency. You had China, China Travel. Then there was the China Store. That was also China Resources, the store. And then there was Yu products and there were a whole lot of other China companies in various businesses so they had quite a lot of representation but if you wanted to sell into China then China Resources was, was the, the conduit and then um, what was very coveted was an invitation to the uh, biannual Canton Trade Fair and uh, even though we'd done lots of business with China uh, on, on the linen etc we never got invited to that and then eventually in 1971 we finally got an invitation to the Canton Trade Fair and that was the first time I ever went into China and that was an in interesting experience. You took the train uh, up to Lo Wu and then you got off the train and went through immigration and then you walked across the wooden bridge across the, the Lo Wu River and then into a, a building on the other side. And they were rather slow at doing their immigration. So what they did was um, they would take away your passports and then they would show you into a dining room and you had lunch. <laughs> and during lunch, they processed you. And then at the end of lunch, they would come out and they would call you up by nationality. So then you got on a train uh, and off to Canton, and uh, you were all billeted in one hotel, which was the Tung Fan Hotel, the East Wind Hotel, and you had to share rooms. And so the Canton Trade Fair, was this just some great big exhibition hall? Yes, it was a huge, yes, yes. All the, all the trading companies, China trading companies, would come down there and they'd have their, they'd have their booths, and, and you would start discussions with them and try and conduct some business. So in that one, if you can cast your mind back to 1971, what were the medical products that you had in your booth? Well, we were, we were trying to sell pharmaceuticals. Uh, we, did, we didn't have a booth. They had the booths. We just came and told them what we had. So we tried so to sell... So you had a little sort of case on a 
trolley. Well, or? Uh, yeah, and lots of lots of leaflets and brochures, and, and, and uh, we show them various catalogues of the various products that we're trying to sell them. The Canton Trade Fair would be all sorts of different items. Uh, yes, uh, right across the board, from heavy machinery to you know consumer products, whatever whatever they had. And actually, during that time, we then became uh, the dis- distributor for. Uh, Shanghai Pharmaceuticals, and we set up a separate company which only sold their uh, generic pharmaceuticals to doctors in Hong Kong. So were there times when China was completely blocked off for trade, or were you able to supply aspirin or whatever the whole time? No, we, we, we actually were blocked off. So from 67, or during 67, our linen business stopped, and it, then it, that never revived. We still tried to sell our medical products, and I think gradually, I mean, we never sold very much in those days, but, but gradually that came back. With the medical products, what can, can you remember what, what sort of the early things, was it sort of gyroscopes or, or syringes? Uh, or? Oh, uh, 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 we mentioned syringes. We introduced the first disposable syringes into Hong Kong. They were Japanese. And also we introduced the first defibrillator into Hong Kong, which was a machine to make your heart restart. And uh, it was ordered by an Australian cardiothoracic surgeon who worked at the Kowloon Hospital. And it came from America. It came from a company called Corbin Farnsworth. Uh, this arrived and it was delivered to the hospital. And then I got a phone call from the surgeon. He said, oh, he said, I'm going to use it for the first time next week. Would you like to come over and watch? And this was one of the most nerve-wracking episodes of my whole life because I had to... So there was a poor Chinese lady who was almost a skeleton and she had an irregular heart rhythm. And he put these two electrodes on her, paddles actually, and pressed the buttons. And was it going to work or not? And it worked and she whipped up and the heart started beating again and they looked and looked and it was in the right rhythm and everyone cheered. (laughs) Oh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> we also sold orthopedic equipment. And, so what, what sort of thing? Replacement knees and hips and high-speed drills. You know, I mean, basically, orthopedic surgeons, they'll hate me for it. They're basically carpenters, um, <laughs> and they use hammers and chisels and high-speed drills, etc. Um, and I used to get asked from time to time if I'd like to watch operations. So I had, had my fair share of watching an operation. I remember in 1965, I had my own personal crisis, which was I was, I was out one day in Repulse Bay. There were friends there who had a speedboat um, and they were doing water skiing and, and they asked me if I'd like to come and try water skiing. So uh, I, I tried it, but I wasn't really very good. So I kept on falling down. So anyway, I said, well, why don't you hop in the boat? And we were towing the owner and he was rather a big, gentleman and the boat wasn't going fast enough so he he said well why don't you go and sit further forward and try and keep the bow down so I went I went right to the front and I put my arms around the bow and sort of lay over it and we were in Repulse Bay and we were going very nicely it was smooth water and then the guy driving it decided we'd be a bit more ambitious and head out of Repulse Bay and there the waves were a little bit bumpy and the boat went out and the first thing is a wave came and I was unprepared, and it knocked me off into the water. The boat ran over me. I felt a big thump, and I, I knew it was on my right arm. And I thought, gosh, it's going to have broken my arm. And I surfaced, and I saw I was in a pool of blood. I called. I said, look, you better come over pretty quickly and, 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 and get hold of me. And they hauled me in the boat, and they got me back to shore, and they dragged me across stones and my 
toes were cut to ribbons. And fortunately, one of our party was a nurse, and she applied a tourniquet. And my whole arm had been ripped by the propeller. And there was an ambulance there, but they said they wouldn't take me to hospital. They wanted to wait for more patients. So we waited two hours, and they finally took me to hospital, to Queen Mary. And, uh, Is that a normal procedure? That well, that just... was back in 1965, yeah. so maybe it was. And they said, OK, well, we've got to sew you up. And about 7 o'clock, I was wheeled into the operating theatre. And you, you, you get a certain adrenaline high. And at that time, I was very new to the medical business. I wanted to know everything possible. So I remember saying to the surgeon, I said, hey, wait a minute. I said, what's the table? What's the brand of table you're operating me on? I said, it's got to be an Alan Hambry's table because that's what we sell. And he actually got down on his knees and looked at the label. Yes, it's out of habit. Fine, you can go ahead now. <laughs> and then he told me it was three hours of surgery mm -hmm. and three layers to sew up. So can you still see it now? What, the, the scars? Yes, yeah, yes, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, the scars are still there. And, and I, lost part of, uh, I lost part of a tendon use. Uh, and so my right hand doesn't function as well as my left hand does. So I was enthusiastic about my work, having been totally uninterested in work before then. I used to like to know exactly what mm. people were using, what they were doing. My thanks to George Gawthorley talking there on the 1960s and his work in the medical business. I hope to have George back on the programme at a later date to talk both about his childhood in Stanley internment camp and also his family's history in China. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.